before we get into this epic podcast on special forces training i just want to let you know that uh the sweet sites are fighting black friday cyber monday sales have started it runs from today monday all the way through to the following tuesday and all you need to do is visit the link in the description and that'll take you to the sweet sites of fighting uh underground page essentially it's an all-in-one subscription you get one month for one dollar so you get absolutely everything all the training programs all the courses and the underground community all under one subscription one dollar for the first month you just use ssof22 that's ssof22 um, at checkout and that'll give you the one dollar for one month so go down to the description and you can find that there by the way sit back and enjoy the podcast all right welcome to the sweet Sides of fighting podcast today we have josh fletcher welcome josh hi james thanks for having me appreciate you inviting me on right, thank you for coming on obviously we had a good chat before this catching up as we as we uh, first connected over in over in Romania while you're working over there with Special Forces. Do you want to maybe dive into a little bit of your background there and, and kind of what you've been up to? Yeah, so I'm performance coach by by background uh, and I've done, I've been here, there and everywhere, really created this kind of weird and wonderful pathway for myself, which has included work in Olympic sport, pro sport, football, rugby, uh, professional like wrestling as well over in India, um, boxing over in India, football over in India. Um, and I think I've worked across five different countries now in, in India, England, France, Romania, um, Italy. Uh, and then when I was over in, so, so I worked at Hintza, I currently work at Hintza with a Formula 2, 3 racing, uh, 2 and 3 racing driver. I was previously with Exos over in Romania with their special forces, Romanian special forces, which I know we're going to dig into. Mm-hmm. Then prior to that, I did a year in India. And uh, the reasons why I went over there is because I, I kind of burnt out and hit the wall mm-hmm. in uh, some of the jobs I was doing in the UK. So I almost ran away and escaped to India. <laughs> found a, a pretty wild and wacky job out there. So um, <laughs> prior to that, English Institute of Sport, professional rugby. So yeah, I think about 15 years in now. So got a slightly diverse range um I'm lucky enough to have a lot of that in in combat sports actually with uh, when i come to reflect on it um, a lot of work a lot of work with gb taekwondo i supported them throughout their olympic cycle in the build-up to 2020 uh sorry 2020 no 2012 geez um, <laughs> <laughs> 2020. <Worst years. laughs> yeah so yeah I, i've kind of been been around a little bit and um experienced a few different things so yeah yeah india is an interesting one eh? like that's still that's still cranking uh the institute right where basically you're living in house and things like that they were looking for someone what, a year or two ago to run the whole program yeah they um that's when, when i joined up that project it was it was fresh out the gates um mm-hmm. and, it, and you know india being india it's they say it's going to happen in the january it will happen in the june july and not and half of what they promise you um (laughs) you know it was it's a new startup and and what they actually put together from a facilities perspective was absolutely out of this world i mean it's certainly something india had never seen um and and now you know they've got some real good stability in terms of um the the types of programs that they're offering and running um what you will see in the next kind of three, five years is some of those real younger kids who have been there for years, they'll, they'll be maturing and coming up through the ranks and um, winning at major championships. So that, that's something you're hundred percent going to see. Um, there's a lot of politics and issues that they have to battle with and um, <laughs> their affiliations and their partnerships with the, um, with the governing bodies is always a challenge for them. But in terms of what they can offer and their facilities, probably up there with some of the best in the world in terms of the sports mm-hmm. side. Well, we might come back to that, but I want to kind of steer this podcast towards special forces, tactical strength and conditioning, because there's always a, I guess we could say a misconception between what special forces or tactical strength and conditioning or training looks like and how it is, I guess, used within professional or just amateur sporting context. So do you want to maybe dive into I think what, what might be good is just going straight into how you guys actually trained and then we can kind of build out from there. 
Yeah, I think the the most important thing to for anybody listening and anybody who is intrigued and interested in the special forces is, is um, it is they are a group of people that people aspire to and look up to, and unfortunately, there's too many of those their philosophies and mantras uh, adapted. Uh, without real context of understanding what it is they actually have to go and do. Those guys are going to protect people. They're going to war. We are training people for sport, which is running around a field chasing a ball or, you know, having a scrap with somebody in a cage. <laughs> it's not going to war. It's a bit different to that. I, I know a fight is, is slightly is a bit closer to the, to the a battle, but it's not the same thing. It's not, it's not life and death. So there's, there's caveats to kind of everything that I'm saying, and there's some significant lines that need to be drawn in the sand. Um, but in terms of the training we do, I think it really depends on on what phase they're in of training. So part of my job was to train their recruits coming through the schoolhouse to prepare them for selection. So if you want to think about selection, if you've ever seen the program, Who Dares Wins? Um, I know there's different variations of that around the globe, but essentially it's a TV program where they show random celebrities and people put through a 21 day training train up uh, to see if they could make it through um, and essentially the selection processes that we were involved in were exactly the same just a lot more violent and essentially the the content was was pretty similar but the guys going into that pipeline from military background instead of being either a celebrities or b uh, you know random members of the public so what what we did is we when i kind of got got on the ground it was to really establish what is it what is it you need them to be able to do and then we track back based on what a week would look like what each of their modules looks like so they've got things like small unit tactics which would be um small movements but on your feet small movements for an entire day uh moving as a group another unit right learning how to co communicate move um, shoot, fire, shoot, fire, uh, sorry, um, shoot, move, shoot, move. So they'd cover 10, 15, 20 K a day doing that, but at this really, really slow, low pace. And then we had to kind of build that into our training and our programming. So what is it they have to go and do? So what's the module they're in? Um, and then we build our training around where they're, where they're at and, and what it is they need to do. So then we would look at the week and we knew that there were certain activities that they needed to be able to do in order to achieve some of the, the basic minimum standards that, that were part of their assessment structure. And, and we built a program to be able to ensure one thing, really, that when they got to selection, that they would drop out of selection for reasons relating to mental weakness rather than physical. And physically like robustness, physical, physical strength or physical, or, you know, endurance, whatever physical quality it is you want. We, we wanted to make sure that they were solid. That was my job to make sure that they were robust enough to be able to handle it. They didn't always have to be the fittest, didn't have to destroy every single test there was, but they needed to be robust enough to be still standing at the end. Um, and if they were still standing at the end, then they've obviously shown enough kind of mental fortitude throughout that process to, to be, warranted to go into the schoolhouse selection process which is a six to nine month one so if we look at like the uh, a classic week it would be pretty much a monday to friday um they needed to ruck which for those of you guys who don't know it's just loaded marching so a, a big bag on the back of a certain load and they need to be able to do that at a set pace for a set distance in a set time so uh, on undulating terrain. So we had to build that into our programming. So we would always do a, a longer ruck on a, on a Friday. That would be our longest one. Uh, and then we would, we would incorporate two resistance training sessions, one, re one regen session and, um, run twice within the week. So some of their runs in the selection process were longer. So I won't, it varies year to year. So some would be up to eight or nine miles and some would be, uh, smaller than that, like a little bit shorter. So. Obviously, one of the biggest factors and variables we're considering is time on feet and couple the time on feet with what they actually do in their day. If they're in small unit tactics, 
and or land navigation, they go out and get lost. And some of these dudes are doing 23k a day because they get lost. <laughs> They're walking around, and you know they have to send out a party to find them, and then that, that's just how it was. Um, but that means that we had to change our training because otherwise they get, they'll get they'll just break. So we would adapt the week based on which group of people were in what, which module. But essentially, normally it'd be a Monday. They would do a resistance-based session. Uh, Tuesday would be a, a rock and a run. So they would do their rock first. Uh, sorry, they do their run first, which normally be some sort of tempo-based run. Um, interestingly, I never ran them for any more than one k, any one one particular interval. So we built up to one k intervals. We did is four um, to prepare them for up to nine mile runs. We we never did any more than four. Uh, because I knew that the accumulative load and the accumulative volume of training that we were doing throughout the week was going to be building the capacity needed to handle those runs. Um, and then we did uh, a tempo ruck, which is to get them used to the speed which they were going to be walking at. And that was literally like sort of 20, 30 minutes where we would just go out with the load on the back and we walk at the exact pace that they were going to need to be walking at round, around, 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 around in a circle. Simple as that. Wednesday was uh, off-feet conditioning slash um, just low level and um, recovery. Thursday would normally uh, go again and do some resistance training. And um, then occasionally we would bolt on a bit of a run at the end of that as well. But that would again be pretty small and short and sharp. Uh, and then we did the long the long ruck on the Friday. And that was the training week. Um, but that would be a classic training week if you're in I don't know, a classroom-based module, but if you were out doing land navigation, something like that, or small unit tactics, we would change that slightly. Yeah, you also mentioned the, the mental aspect too. It's interesting because the training week you described there probably flies against the face of what most people envision a special forces training week to be. A special forces training week, I think most people kind of envision as this hardcore obstacle courses, crazy training lows, just hard training and like, like basically like hell week, you know, every day of the week. So I guess from your perspective, then the training you're doing, you obviously mentioned the mental side. Do you think that that kind of training can instill some kind of mental fortitude into these guys, or is that something that's innate in them or are there other ways to develop that mental capacity? Yeah. So the, the misconception is that, that what I'm describing is a train up for them to go into selection and selection is where they hit that 21 day period within that 21 day period is a hell week, which is just like exactly as you're imagining, like just absolutely disgusting. <laughs> the most savage thing you'll ever do in your life and that you can probably imagine all sleep deprived and, you know, calorie controlled. So you've got 21 days there which we were training them up to be able to tolerate that 21 so that the guys who go in, the guys who come out the other side, they go into a nine, six to nine month schoolhouse where things are a little bit calmer, but they are then going through the exact modules that need to be um, learned in order to yeah. you almost have to earn the right to go to school. That's basically what I'm saying. Gotcha. And um, 21 days is le earning your right to go through. So yeah, you're through selection, but like as soon as you get through selection, that doesn't mean shit. Like you're now in the schoolhouse and now you've got to prove yourself for six to nine months continuously. Um, and that's not all physical because they are aware, you know, we can't smash everyone every single day, but during that 21 days, it's almost like gloves are off and you know, they do what they got to do. <laughs> Um, yeah. So what what we found uh, from the physical training side in the build-up, so an eight-week preparation course to build them up for that 21-day selection, what we found is that the guys that we were training, they, they've got this, this point here that's like their individual ceiling. So a lot of people were coming in and they weren't even hitting their own individual ceiling. So our first job was to get people to reach their individual ceiling. And the next job is to extend their ceiling, raise their ceiling, because this is the type of people that we're looking for up here. We're not interested in below the line. We're only interested in these guys up here. So it was twofold, really, to really try to upskill them and help them to understand that they can push themselves further than they think they can. And their limits are further and their limits are kind of up here rather than physical. Um, we would kind of try to balance that and monitor and manage that. But 
I, our job wasn't to be shouting at them and bashing them all the time. Our job was the physical training and the recovery so that other guys would go and do that. And that was their job. So we were quite aligned with that, like definitely in the first year where, you know, it was really clear as to, um, you know, the physical training was the priority and the physical training t- took priority because it, everybody understood that that was what was going to keep people healthy during selection. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's interesting, as you mentioned, it's those 21 days. That's kind of like, that's the hardcore shit that goes on and then outside of that you don't you don't really have that training again is that is that how, what you uh, mentioned there you you then go into almost the program that you, yeah. you go into a more stable more solid program so they will train every day but there's there's flexibility and mobility as to what that looks like depending on the module so we would have three phases in the schoolhouse year which was essentially based on developing something, maintaining something or recovering from something. So for example, when they're up in the mountains, um, you know, that was savage training in minus 16 and, you know, knee high snow, we're not going to be pushing them and absolutely flogging them, but we did get them outside walking where well, actually had to walk them around to keep them warm. So they do a small courtyard. We'd do a lap actually to walk the snow down. Then we would get on the, get on, get on the floor and do a mobility exercise. They get up they do a lap, they get down they do another one up, move around and they do their prep every day. When, when the snow was coming down and, the, and it was up to kind of chest height, or we had to do that in the hot, in the hotel, in the corridors on the staircases. So, you know, essentially, um, that was a maintenance period where we were maintaining some sort of patterns. We weren't putting any stimulus into them, but we were maintaining them in order for them to go out every day and do what they needed to do, which was learn to ski, move around like tactical movements, like uh, in in the mountains um, and all the different activities that they had to do. So that was kind of a maintenance. And then when they finished these really savage modules, and we had maybe like a four week training block, we would do at least the first week as a recovery block and then we could push them for two. And then we would uh, kind of taper them back down for whatever the next module was. And if the next module was a classroom based one, we know that we could go pretty hard, which means we could do two recovery blocks, two week, two week recovery, and they could do, you know, a three, four week hit um, of intensity, and we'd back them off and we would just move it up and down depending on what we knew was coming. And I wanted to get your take on, I guess, the idea of that hard, almost hell week style training into sports performance. You, I think it's almost like, like it's all over the world, really, but I guess it's more advertised in the USA with coaches having a hell week or teams doing something in the preseason or even fighters doing something in their fight preparation where they just have a week where they just absolutely bash themselves for whatever reason. And I want to get your take on kind of that idea taken from special forces and put into sport, a sporting context. Yeah, it's just a misconception. I mean, what, what sport lasts for a week? Um, what, what sport actually lasts for that duration nonstop um, where your sleep's involved in that? And it, and it does, it's just a bit dumb really. Um, I understand that you have to go to a dark place, but you can do that in a, in a way that's going to facilitate the sport. So, you know, obviously in combat sport, a lot of you guys will have come across shark tanks before. So, you know, if you don't know what it is, you keep the one guy in the middle and you keep rotating the opponent, whether that's grappling or boxing, whatever it might be, that's an effective way to develop skills under fatigue and, to do something that's very sport specific and there's just it's just outdated it's outdated and it's not, it's not sensible to uh, take these take these ideas and these philosophies and apply them to sport because they're not doing the same things if you go and employ some sort of hell week in your training then you're going to run around and chase a ball around. You're not going to go downrange and, and, and fight. 
and they do hell week because they need to know they need to weed out the 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 people that aren't supposed to be there there's a 75 percent dropout rate in special forces from the minute they walk through the door all the way through to the ones who graduate and it's almost to the t they actively want to get rid of 75 percent because they're just not cut out to be there they don't deserve it and and they shouldn't be there because they're not safe so you can't compare it's not even apples and oranges it's like apples and flipping bricks they're so different it's it's untrue so is there a place for training people to fatigue um yeah maybe can you do it in a sensible way yes can you do it in a sport specific way yes can you do it in a way that is actually going to benefit them uh yes you can and that is just smart and intelligent planning but you know it's um it, it's it's just a bit mis misguided to think that you can pull something out of there and plonk it in there um i i do understand that there are there is some value from shared kind of suffering if you want to put it like that that and camaraderie that you get and the teamwork that you will get from uh that that you know shared feeling of grafting to to a incredibly high level I, I get that but at what cost often there'll be a lot of people picking up injuries there's huge spikes in volume from going and doing these training camps or these visiting an army camp and, and you know all this sort of stuff um i i think that you can recreate it quite quite easily and you could do it in a safe and controlled manner um and i think that it's yeah it's, it's misguided they're not they're not going to war they're going to play a sport so for me it's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a no yeah i think the issue is as well it's not so much just that week it's what happens the following weeks after because you've just as you mentioned spiked this huge training load of doing whatever it is that week of usually it's mindless stuff too because you can't kind of thrash someone with sports skills it's going to be some kind of hard running. I don't know. I guess the, the classic college football one is burpees and push-ups or whatever they do for hours. <laughs> um, yeah. If you think of some of the activities that the military, like if if you if we're talking about going and doing the types of activities that they might do in selection, you've got like log presses and they've got like sit-ups with the giant logs and carrying yeah. logs, heaving these giant logs around. You can do that with rugby players. You've got dudes who have pretty much man for man got some sort of shoulder history or impingement. <laughs> you're going to get problems, fact. And you're going to have those problems. They might get through the week, but they're going to be dormant and they're going to inflame something. Yeah. Which is again when they go, all right, lads, good week last week. Let's get back to normal training, passing. Oh, uh oh. Like, oh <laughs> yeah. Bro, Exactly. I'm in trouble because I've been lifting a log. <laughs> I don't even do military press in my program because I don't want to do it on a fixed bar. I only use a single-handed kettlebell press instead because it's safer for my shoulders. Yet I've gone and done, you know, 50 or 100 reps on a telegraph pole. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it's, it's just illogical. But when you're doing it and you survive the week, you don't attribute the injury to those events. Yeah. This is why a lot of strength and conditioning coaches are just like, Oh Jesus Christ! Like, what? What are you doing? Why? Why would you do that? There's, there's much more intelligent ways to program your your training to get the physical adaptation you're looking for than flogging yourself to within an inch of your life. Yeah, yeah. I've had to shut down army army camp talks and some of my my roles <laughs> previously. I was lucky enough to to get my way there, but damn, like, I know what you mean that. It sounds, I guess, from a, maybe a coaching perspective, it sounds good because, hey, I'm going to put my players through this. I'm going to see who the leaders are. I'm going to see this. I'm going to see that. But if you're just doing, if you're actually preparing for the sport itself, then you're developing the skills and you're going to have better players instead of just tired, injured players. And then you wonder why, I don't know, during a fight or during whatever is happening in a match, like, you know, why... Why are they doing this, or why don't they know what to do here, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. You know, you've wasted <laughs> precious time doing something else. Yeah, it's it, another thing to think about when you, when you consider team sport. 
each player has their own physical needs and there's no way that, you know, pick a rugby player, you know, a, a Manu Tuolangi, there's no way if they're on an England tour uh, and they go to a military training camp that he's not going to want to get involved. But he's so finely tuned that, you know, he can go ping at any point. He probably doesn't do any contact in training whatsoever. Like he has to restrict all the types of movements that he does because he's just so, so giant. He has a bespoke program. But there's no way you're going to be able to tell him, sorry, mate, you can't take part in that military camp, that team building size, because you're going to get injured. It's, I think now the coaches are becoming a bit smarter, especially at the highest level, as the, they'll be talking very clear, closely with the, with, the, with the military guys as to what they're actually doing uh, and how to get value from the types of exercise and activities. But, yeah, there's a lot of cringeworthy stuff that still goes on. <laughs> For sure. Is there anything you've taken from working in special forces that you've been able to bring into sports performance? Yeah, there's a lot, actually. I mean, a lot of it is to do with the kind of a mentality side of things um, and some things that I've almost got a list of things that should be left alone because that is that's military. That's for going to protect countries, people, and kill, and and help people help save lives. And that is chasing the ball around, or you know, having a fight so you can win a belt. They're two, they're polar opposites in lots of ways. So some of the things that I would that I've left behind and like would advocate people to leave. Um, in in the special forces world, they say it's it's um, mission team self, and so the mission always comes first. Like because whatever they're doing is above them as individuals and it's above any single member of the team or that team as a collective. So the mission always comes first. Um, I think they see that as a greater purpose and that's often what you'll see in the films. So that they genuinely live that, mm. especially the higher operating teams, mission team self. So team is the obviously the group of people that's made up of the individuals and the individual is the last person that gets considered like you put everybody before yourself. Now, I flip that on its head, and I think sport should flip that on its head. Like, yeah, you take take that mantra, but flip it. It's self-team because if you get yourself right, if you get yourself and your preparation to the, to a high-performance level and your well-being, you look after yourself, your self-care, your preparation to, to that, like, nth degree, then that will have a positive impact on the team. The team is the sum of its parts, individuals, and this includes the coaches. They need to look after their own well-being as much as anybody else then the mission takes care of itself. If everybody's together, aligned, they, they've done their work, they've done the, the correct work to the right level, and I'm talking not just about the training, but also the recovery and the mental prep, the physical, the, the technical preparation. If everybody's done what they need to do, then the, the mission should take care of itself. So that's one thing that should should be flipped on its head. Um, I, I took a lot about the the kind of reflection, and I, I've actually got a practitioner well journal which I which I've created based off a lot of the um, special forces ideas, um, and that's around um, uh, reflection on the sessions that they do. So, and I I use, I use this with my athletes now, and I have done I did in the military as well. It's three up, three down. So when you're reflecting on your own training or your own um, sessions if you're watching this as a coach or even as an athlete you will say three things that went well and three things that didn't go well and or that you want to improve for next time so you lit like often we're so driven for more and better we're so diff driven for performance that we focus on the things that didn't go so well but the problem is when we do that is we don't reinforce the positive habits we don't reinforce those things that went well so we prevent ourselves from reaching uh from sustaining that high performance and we prevent ourselves from creating super strengths out of those things that go well. If we are too negatively focused, like which is very common as coaches and practitioners, if we're too negatively focused, then what we do is we have just this revolving door of things that went well, but they keep changing. And, and this three up, three down philosophy came from, uh, I, I was fortunate enough to go on a, uh, NSHQ, so NATO Special Forces Headquarters Mental Performance and Resilience course. And one of the stories that they told was about a 12-man uh, ODA, so that's Operations Attachment Alpha. That's a group of people that go into to, um, they, that's a group that goes downrange and how they break up the Special Forces guys, at least they did at the time. Uh, and they would go in and they would clear a house. So clearing a house is essentially just 
doing whatever needs to be done when they're in there. That might be eliminating a target or it might be extracting someone, hostage rescue, that sort of thing. So they would go in, they would do their run through in, in training and they would go house to house to house. So they do their run through, then they do a debrief, run through debrief, run through debrief. And the, the, the psychologist is working with them at the time. They, they would step back and they, they would listen to the debrief and they were the most critical group of people that they'd ever come across. So focused on improvement because the stakes are so high. And what, what the psychologist found and observed was that whenever they came in, sorry, whenever they came back out, they had very easily listed off five, 10 things to work on, but the things that had gone well, they didn't, they gave lip service to, which meant there was just this revolving door of things that weren't going well. And what they noticed is after maybe the second or third run, they were starting to repeat themselves. So it was the things that they hadn't changed and hadn't kind of simplified. So the psych said to him, hang on a minute, boys, let's just chill on the negatives. Let's go three up, three down. You can only go with three. And, and what happened is they started to, to ingrain and solidify the three things that were going well. And they were able to repeat those run after run after run. And the three things that weren't going so well, they made, and they made meaningful change to, and they made sustainable change. And instead of there being this revolving door of the same things going wrong, they were able to stack up their learning in a smart, intelligent and logical fashion. So the outcomes just, you know, kind of went through the roof for them really. So that was a philosophy which I took and implemented into my training, my feedback, my reflections with my athletes, where there's a hard line, it's three, it's, you can list down 20, but you're only focusing on three. The three biggest things that are gonna move the needle no more because that's going to prevent you from reflecting negatively it's going to allow you to really highlight what's most important and also it's going to be really really impactful for you drawing a line under uh your getting out your own head especially at the end of the day or at the end of an evening yeah. i'm gonna link that your practitioner's journal up in the description here because that sounds like it's that's perfect for you know combat athletes looking to improve essentially the performance but would you use that reflection after every session you do or at the end of the day so i i do both or i, I did both of my it depends when you see them if you use it as a coach or an athlete so um and, and how you want to do it so reflection is a tricky one because imagine and this is why i really hate like these new year's reflections and new year's resolutions because you make those reflections based on how you feel that day your reflections mm. basically how do you reflect on February the 30, the 29th, <laughs> yeah. how, how do you reflect on that on December the 31st? It's too far away. You can't remember unless you've kept a record or a log. And this is the micro, meso, macro. Like a macro is like a year's worth of reflection. Your meso is your, your monthly and your micro is your weekly or your daily. And what you do is when you get to the end of a year, you look at what you did each month and how you reflected. And then if there's some interesting notes from each month, those reflections each month based on what you've done each week and the reflections at the end of the week are based on what you've done each day so i really encourage people to reflect in that fashion because it allows you to look back objectively and accurately at a longer period of time so yes i encourage people to reflect in the short term uh, immediately after the session so that's almost a micro level and and hot debriefs are brilliant for that um hot debrief is like a real firm fixed fast um so as an example from coaching it might be uh or or let's use a combat sport example uh you, you need a uh, in second round you you drop your guard three times keep guard up got it yep good done like bang like everybody knows in the hot debrief that's how i'm going to talk to you everybody's not offended because they know it's going to be direct it's fast it's quick you're going to do it done it's not for discussion and if you say, well, no, I don't, I didn't actually, we'll talk about it later. Good. Like it, it's just closed down and then we put it in the bank and we deal with it later. So you, you can hot debrief in any way you want, but as long as both parties are clear on what that looks like, then mm. you, you're solid. Um, so the hot debrief is really important. At the end of each training session, we would do three up, three down. Boys, three things that you thought went well, bang, bang, bang. Three things that we thought didn't go so well, bang, bang, bang. Okay, cool. More often than not, the three things that didn't go so well that they want to improve will be the first things that come out of their mouth. 
Um, and that's where we more often than not easier for athletes to focus on as well. But we can start by constantly engaging in it. Uh, then we get to the, the weeklies and the monthlies. We're looking at the big wins, the small wins and the habits. So what are the, the recurring habits, good habits, bad habits? Well, you know, I've started to manage my nutrition a bit more effectively. Okay, cool. But good habit, bad habit. I'm still sleeping past my alarm every day or going to bed too late. Okay, we've got a record and a log of that. And we can see the next week and the next month whether those are starting to change. And we're also starting to celebrate our wins, be those big or small. So we're shifting towards a kind of more positive way to reflect rather than our mm. our, our natural bias to, to be negative reflectors. Yeah, I'm thinking of this from, I guess, an athlete's perspective, because I think most most people, we've got some coaches that listen to the podcast, but a lot of combat athletes, they might be looking to implement this kind of reflection to help, I guess, with the mental side of their training, which I guess, would you also reflect after non-technical sessions? For example, if you're just doing conditioning or just doing strength training, would that also count as something you would reflect on or would you just, or would this solely be, okay, this is reflecting for sports skills? Oh, you can reflect on absolutely anything. Like I reflect on my day. Um, I, I'll get to the end of the day and say, well, what went well today? What was I happy with and unhappy with? And what it does is it bookends the day. So it closes it off. You, you write it down. This is what it's all about. It's a journal. So you write these things down. Once you've written it down, it's out. It's, it's out your mind. It's on the paper. It's, it's a way to process and dump off the things from the day. So if you've gone in and you've got three sets of four, four reps to do on the back squat and I don't know, some push presses after, and you go in, you nail it, you hit your lifts. Well, what's to reflect on? Like the session went well, uh, nailed all my lifts, um, technically spot on. Um, okay, cool. Dead simple. Things you might improve. Mm, maybe I could have been a bit more accurate with my rest times. Maybe I could have fueled up a bit more effectively before and I missed my stretching at the back end of the session or I missed my mobility. Um, yeah. I, I raised the, the load too quickly, something like that. So you, you can do it. it. It doesn't always have to be really strict and firm. What it does have to be is something that A, you can log down so you can keep a record of, like a training journal. Uh, and B, it, it needs to be something that you can refer back to um, so that when you reflect in three, four, five months time, you can look back and say, oh, okay, I was in a pretty good place back then, or I'm not surprised I got injured because of this. Well, I didn't look at my own, I didn't listen to my own advice and, you know, that sort of thing. So reflect as you see fit, but ensure that you're following a bit of a process when, when you do it and three up, three downs, a great way to do that. Start, stop, continue is another way. Um, and there's tons of different methods, but ensure that you're writing it down is critical. Nice. Is there any thing physical training wise you took from special forces that you were able to apply within sport? Yeah, definitely. So the, the, one of the biggest things was an accumulation of load having a capacity based impact. So as I mentioned, these guys had to run nine miles in selection. In the second year I was there, the dudes fucked up, so they had to run nine miles twice. <laughs> they had to do nine miles. They had a little bit of a break, and they messed up the first nine miles for reasons I won't go into, <laughs> but they, they got made to do it again. So they did 18 miles. 18 miles, right? The furthest that they'd ever run in one single occasion in, select, in training with me was 1K. The most amount of intervals they've done was four 1K intervals. Yet every single one of them survived 18 miles of total volume on one day with a very short space of time in between. And every single one of them got a better time on the second nine and the first nine. Wow. And how, how, does that weigh, how does that add up when they've done no, no long distance running at all, never ran more than 1K in eight weeks? It's the accumulation of volume. It's the impact of slow rucking of, they did long distance rucking, which is basically, like I said, walking at a set pace, but that's like 4.5 miles per hour. That's on over half the, half the speed that they would have been running at. So 
that the accumulative volume of all of the training added together, the micro doses of conditioning, the low rest between strength based work, the uh, low, you know, zone one, zone two cardio stuff on the recovery days, the the ruck marches two times per week, all of that bundled together and appropriately recovered from gave them the skill, uh, sorry, gave them the capacity to be able to built their aerobic base essentially but so your aerobic base doesn't just have to be built from running on a treadmill bike something deliberate it's you need to think about it as the sum of all the parts and and the physical training in itself the, the technical training has a, has a massive impact on that as well so that was a huge element i took, in, took from it um and the the next one i, I suppose was it's basically the availability. The the most important factor for us was to get every single person there. And if they didn't improve their physical testing scores, I was more interested in getting more people to the door of selection than having every single person improve on their pull-ups, push-ups, or run scores. You know, I, I wasn't as bothered by that. They would take care of themselves. What I cared about was ensuring that let's say in year one we had a 40 percent dropout rate i wanted a 30 or 20 percent dropout rate in year two and that was my goal so ensure that there was more people available to be selected to fight to turn up to to train to engage um, and that was that was kind of really important um, then i suppose it's just looking at the types of injuries and looking at the the, the prevention methods that you can put in place so um you know, a really good phrase that, that, that I coined from there was left of bang. So left of bang is a military phrase that describes like what happened in the buildup to a catastrophic event or, um, a, ser a serious event. So an explosion, a firefight, um, a, a big issue, a big problem, a big situation. And what were the events that led up to that? And then how can we adapt and adjust our standard operating procedures in order to mitigate that risk and try to ensure that the severity of it is nowhere near as high. So we're trying to remove it if we can, reduce it if we can, and then if it does happen, make it nowhere near as, as severe an outcome. And it's exactly the same with we can steal that and we should apply that to all different scenarios in our life and our training. Um, so from a physical perspective, it's okay. Oh, let's just think about a punch like we, we can we can reduce and mitigate the severity of that by uh having a strong neck and a strong neck is going to reduce the chances of that impact having uh, leading to some sort of concussion the impact of a little bit of uh agility or mobility is going to allow us to move slightly out that that extra tiny little bit out of the way because we've got a little bit more thoracic mobility to be able to drop back out the way um you know we can talk about these, these different things all, all the time but that's what the standard operating procedures are it's like looking at your training in so much detail that you can say what's the highest risk things that are happening here and how can i get a handle on that and adapt my training and my lifestyle to to support that that actually makes me think of i guess in submission grappling obviously leg locks are a huge factor nowadays heel hooks man you see knee injuries in pretty much every single bloody uh competition you go to now and obviously if you get caught deep and don't tap early it's inevitable that something's something's going to pop but if you're doing uh heavy strength lower body strength training full range of motion at least that's something that's going to thicken and strengthen the tendons and ligaments that could potentially give you you know, the extra millisecond of time that kind of you know, sparked that in my head there as well. Yeah, it's uh, our example of that was where, where are the most common injuries in the military setting? 
and that it comes from ruck marching. Ruck marching, it was ankle, knees, lower back. It's not uncommon in all sports, but what mm. was it? All right, it's the repetitive strain. Well, what does that come from? It comes from the amount of time they have on their feet. Okay, let's be conscious of that. The amount of time they have under load, let's be conscious of that. Let's be conscious of the training age that they have. Let's be conscious of how many times they've had load on their back in their history. Um, one of the most injurious and the challenge, most challenging factors, we'd have studs turn up, these absolute studs, they'd fly through every test. You put a bag on their back, they couldn't fucking move. They were useless. But everything else they could do. So, okay, how do we get left of that? Well, we need to provide a pre-plan for them to, uh, to get here. We need to get left of that bang so that we provide a plan. I really don't care whether you can come in and do two pull-ups, but if you can't walk with a bag on your back, you might as well pack off and go home. So yeah. you, need to build in, you need to build in marching two times per week at this load. Week one, you do, let's say, five kilos for three miles. And on the next day, you do five, five kilos for 3.5. The next week, you keep the same distances, but you up the load. And we're yeah. just trying to prepare people. And, and, and that was tissue tolerance. And, and it's no different to what you're talking about. And we did the same sort of thing with uh, ankle stability and strength. Um, We'd have people saying, what on earth are we doing? Like, what, this is ridiculous. And then we go out and, and we, we talk to the instructors as to, you know, what's all the injuries that people are normally getting when they go and do their marches, ankle, 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 no ankle twists, no ankle turns. Mm. And what, what's happened? No one's twisted their ankle. Well, <laughs> we're doing quite a lot of work to support this. So, yeah. And this, this might be highly hypothetical, theoretical. Um, but you mentioned obviously the accumulation of volume is that thing that built the capacity is, is there a way theoretically that you could see it being applied to combat sports in terms of training? Yeah, of course it's, it's understanding and knowing where, where they're lacking. So it might be that. If you if you were to consider heart rate, so it's very difficult in combat sports to like keep a heart rate belt on the whole time. But if you think mm. about the intensities and the zones, it might be that the vast majority of work is done in you know zone two three, mm. two three four, and you actually only need to hit a bit of five and a bit of four, and that's all you need to do from a conditioning perspective. And then you cover the whole spectrum. Yeah. It might be that to get a full understanding of that, you need to look at okay. Let's actually really deeply look at what a uh, a two-hour <laughs> jiu-jitsu session looks like from a physical perspective, and let's fill the gaps. Well, I I never I didn't observe you absolutely blowing out your ass at any point whatsoever, or I didn't observe you you had a well, we managed to put a heart rate belt on you, and it was clear that you didn't get into like high zone four five at all. Therefore let's just smash some zone five, four or five intervals. Let's look at the whole week, like mapping out Monday to however many days a week, Monday to Friday, Monday to Saturday. Let's map out the whole week and let's see what it looks like and how hard you would say that was intensity wise. A really good idea for that is um, if, you, if you start to look at things just basically like RPE time, times minutes. So RPE times minutes and the athletes can do this. Just take out like a piece of paper. And if you've got a squared piece of paper, that's even better. You look at a session and you map Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. If you've got two a day, it'd be AM, PM. And then you do what color you thought it was. So red, amber, green is like light, medium, hard. And then you can start to say, well, out of a 30-minute, se 60-minute session, 10 minutes of it were really hard. Okay, so you scribble in that 10 minutes as red, and the rest of it stays at whatever intensity you thought it was. And then you look at that, and when you can, like, represent it visually, mm. you think, I don't have much red in here. Or there's only 10 minutes or 15 minutes worth of red work throughout this, yet in about, I know that if I've got to go hard, I need to know I can do that regularly and consistently. And that ability to change gear... Um, you, you want to know that you can do that, especially later on to a competition. So you can visually represent how, um, you know, in a non-scientific way, the athletes are going to be watching this or listening and say, yeah, I can do that. I can take three colors, pens, red, amber, green. And I can say, I've got my green work in there, which is my re regen, my recovery work, my, I walk, a really slow jog. I've got 
amber, which is the majority of my of my technical training. So that's taken care of. All I need to do in my physical training and my physical conditioning is actually just attacks and red zone. Mm, it's mm. as simple as that. Well, I'm, I'm simplifying it, of course. But, yeah. Well, what, how does that sound to you? Yeah, no, that, that's uh, that's exactly it. There, yeah, I mean, so a lot of, I guess, a lot of the way I've written the programs for Sweet Science Flying. So I think some people probably purchased those who are listening. Um, they're geared towards people who aren't training full time. So, like you mentioned there, you might be getting a lot of your zone two, zone three, whatever it is, through technical training, which people are, but maybe they're only doing three, four times a week of that technical training, and that's when the nuances come in too, because obviously. A lot of the, I guess, practitioners and researchers working with high-level athletes have the, I guess you could say, uh, advantage of a lot of that stuff being taken care of within technical training, which is true. But then if you're not doing enough of that technical training, then as you mentioned, if you're coloring in your squares, you probably see you only have maybe, I don't know, four green days with some red in there. You're like, okay, well, you know, that's all I've got in there four hours a week you know maybe i need to do a little more of that green to build whatever it is that base and whatever else yeah yeah i think it's um i think it's a gap analysis really isn't it where do you struggle it's reversing it reverse engineering it working back from where your biggest problems are what's your biggest pain point well i really struggle to keep up with these dudes who just go bonkers like uh, in the last like 30 seconds of the bout or I get gassed real quick because people come out the bat and go nuts in the first 30 seconds. And then I'm fucked for the next, for the rest of the round or I struggle in the third round. Like the, there'll be telltale and key signs here as to what type of work you need to do. It might be that, you know, if you're blowing up in the, in the second round, third round, or you, you know, you're totally useless the third round that you need to build some more capacity um, and your ability to handle tolerate that that higher intensity work for a more consistent block of time um some like int intense interval training might be might be the way forward um we we uh, we essentially used like hit training and varied intervals consistently throughout our training and our build up to manage time on feet and we manipulated intensities uh quite a lot to ensure that we built the capacity because we knew that all of the lower level stuff and the capacity based work was going to be coming from other areas. Yeah. Um, and that relationship that you have with your coach uh, is, is really critical, like really trying to understand and map out, like, you know, how hard is this going to be? Because I want to know for the, this reason, not so I can sandbag it, but I want to know so that I can plan the rest of my training for the week or the month um and and fill in my gaps really so yeah no, no. this has been uh, an insightful podcast and lots of actionable tips and information for for fighters and coaches out there but if people want to follow you josh and uh find your i'll, I'll link your journal down in the description too but if people want to follow you where can they find you yeah so i i talk a lot about practitioner well-being on um the social media so that's my company career blueprint um i i also do um quite a lot of different consultancy and programming um for different athletes as well so on twitter you'll find me uh, at coach blueprint one and on instagram it's career blueprint so at career blueprint my website is www.yourcareer-blueprint.com and uh yeah that's that's pretty much where i hang out and um yeah it, it's there's there's tons of different um I could talk about this stuff all day, I suppose, <laughs> but uh, I think we've we've given we've given a fair few nuggets, haven't we? Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I'll link all those up in the description too, as well, so <clears throat> people can kind of can visit you on on all your different platforms. But thanks for coming on, Josh. I really appreciate you sharing a lot of the special forces stuff. My pleasure. My pleasure.